Would you now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And before we, <clears throat> before we dive into particular verses here this morning, something that I think is probably universally true uh, for most of us is that we find stories of rescue to be pretty inspiring. Uh, it was just uh, summer of 2021, about 18 months ago, uh, we all got up one morning to realize that during the wee hours of the morning, a multi-story condominium building had collapsed down on the east coast of South Florida. And 98 people died, but four people were rescued. Uh, one died at the hospital, so really three um, survived that, one of them being a 15-year-old boy named uh, Jonah Handler. And he was on the 10th floor with his mother when it gave way, and he fell the 10 stories. Uh, his mother died, and he landed in a crevice trapped inside a pocket amid fallen concrete. And, of course, rescue workers were scurrying as fast as they could, but a man walking his dog saw his hand reach out between the concrete, waving, and that's how they uh, found him and how he was rescued. Man, that just, whenever there's an earthquake somewhere, and no matter where in the world it is, and they start digging through the rubble, the workers, the onlookers, everybody, they cheer and applaud when someone is successfully rescued. How, what has it been, 10 or 12 years ago, uh, the 33 uh, miners in the, the mine in Chile, a half mile beneath the surface of the earth, they even made a movie about it. And they were down there for over two months, 69 days to be exact. And the whole world uh, watched, you know, with just uh, attentiveness and just really praying and hoping that somehow some, if not all of them, would be saved, and they were. That's, that's inspiring. And on a much grander scale, I mean, because whether it's a 15-year-old boy or whether it's 33 Chilean miners... The, the mass of rescue in World War II at Dunkirk is, is staggering. 330,000 troops across the English Channel were ferreted to safety. And again, the whole world watched, and it's thrilling to see people in danger rescued. But even a rescue with the staggering numbers of Dunkirk does not begin to compare with what I call the greatest rescue mission known to man. And that greatest rescue mission is represented by the table, the Lord's Supper, communion, the bread and the cup that we have set before us this morning that hopefully all of us will be partaking of. And this rescue mission that I speak of is described numerous times throughout the Bible, and one such passage is here in Colossians chapter 1, and it's the passage I've chosen for this morning is verses 13 through 20. But actually, I misspeak. This is not my usual custom, but I'm really going to focus on verses 13 and 14 and 19 and 20. 
Not that what is in between where Jesus is seen as central in creation and as the head of the church is unimportant because it's not. But with uh, communion set before us and with the time allotted, I'm going to concentrate on those four verses at the beginning and end of this paragraph. Let me read it aloud to you. And I'll read the whole context, 13 to 20. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And so what we find, especially in verses 13 and 14 and in 19 and 20, we see a brief statement about man's plight, the predicament that mankind is in. Because man in, in his or her natural state dwells, according to verse 13, dwells in a state or a domain of darkness, under the authority of darkness. And this domain of darkness refers to life without God, separated from God, and even hostile to God. And this domain of darkness has a ruler. Paul, the apostle, does not give his name here, but Jesus certainly does. When Jesus appears to the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, and as Paul was relating that experience before King Agrippa in Acts 26, part of what Paul reports Jesus said to him were these words, Paul, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And so Jesus makes it clear that this domain, this realm of darkness, has Satan himself as the ruler. I know that most of you in the room are pretty familiar with Scripture, and certainly it's no surprise to you and it's not news that in comparing life and knowing and serving the Lord and life without Him, that darkness and light are often used in Holy Scripture to talk about this, uh, this dramatic contrast between two ways of living and two realities in this world, darkness and light. To quote Jesus a couple of other times here in this regard, in John 3, Jesus is quoted as saying, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, 
for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And then, yet again, Jesus says in John 8, he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of light. The Apostle Peter echoes that same reality when he talks about Jesus who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. While living in this domain of darkness, we are in a a rebel kingdom, if I can put it that way. In fact, in verse 21, he describes them, their former life, as having been alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in uh, evil deeds. And this, this rebellion, this rebellious spirit that characterizes the, the kingdom of darkness, it's not always manifested by some of the more extreme examples. Uh, man's inhumanity to man that we see played out before us nightly on our television screens and on our computer screens about all the horrible things that go on in the world. But it's not only those extreme examples. See, rebellion against God is a resistance to the message of salvation, and it's dwelling in a darkness, no matter how passive the resistance, it's still resistance. Even someone concluding, well, God may be there, but God can go his way, I'll go mine. That's just as much a rebel as the person who is engaging in some of the most vile sins that men can commit. And it's because of that, when we become Christians and we begin to walk in the light and live in the light of God's Word and in the dwelling Holy Spirit within our lives when we trust Christ, we are reminded in Scripture time and again to make sure you're walking in the light and saying no to the darkness and don't be drawn back into that. In fact, it prompted Paul when he was writing to the Corinthians to say, do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? This last week, I happened to hear Erwin um, uh, Lutzer, the former pastor at Moody Memorial Church, uh, BBN, uh, sometimes I'll have it on in the car, and I'll catch him for a few minutes in the morning, and he was uh, talking about this difference between light and darkness and Satan being over the dominion of darkness, and how we're encouraged uh, to maintain that distinction. And he shared the story of a young lady who came to see him to get pastoral counsel, and she basically said, I have fallen in love with a young man. He's a tremendous young man, but he's not a Christian. And she identified herself as a Christian, but said this young man was not, and it looked like they were moving toward marriage. And what did he think about that? And he said, well, um, I have no reason to doubt that he is an upstanding young man and that uh, he probably has many good qualities. But as a Christian, if you marry him, you will eventually have problems with your father-in-law. Think about who the father-in-law is. Because if someone is not in the kingdom of light, they're in the kingdom of darkness, and we know who the ruler is. 
And <clears throat> that, just that turn of phrase kind of caught my attention. But it's true not only with marriage. Uh, this applies to any relationships we have, whether it's relationships with friends, uh, our places of employment, our pursuit in hobbies and recreation. We should never join with someone who is not a Christian where we are forced to compromise what we stand for because we're under their authority. I have known men and women who have left jobs and careers because they had supervisors or bosses who wanted to demand and require them to do something that was against their conscience as a Christian. And so that would be an illustration of, you know, you do not uh, become unequally yoked because what does darkness and light have to do with one another? But that's really another message for another time. To get back to this text here, man's plight is not only due to being a citizen in the wrong kingdom, it also entails being shackled with our own sin for which we need cleansing and forgiveness. And so he says that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In fact, that which consigns us to the domain of darkness is our own sinful nature. And we do not have the ability to extricate ourselves from our sin, which holds us in bondage. Jesus stated, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And the Apostle Paul echoes that same reality when he states, when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And some of the first verses that many of us memorized as young Christians is in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Make no mistake about it, our sin deserves and brings the righteous judgment of God upon us if it is not forgiven. Now, I know that this message would not find welcome ears with many of the people we rub shoulders with every day in this city. Uh, some people find it uh, insulting to be told that they have a sin nature. In fact, uh, in my reading, uh, I came across uh, an interesting um, remembrance of a woman who was a person of nobility in England during the days of George Whitfield, the famous Reformed preacher. And she decided to invite a duchess that she knew to come hear George Whitfield preach. And for some reason, the woman who extended the invitation saved the note, which is then recorded in a book, of how the woman responded to the invitation. And this is what she said. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. And even though that's a 250-year-old statement, there's a lot of people that you work beside and that you live on the same street with who have that same disposition. But to quote another Brit, G.K. Chesterton, 
This is one of my favorite quotes. I've probably used it a hundred times in my ministry. He once stated, original sin is the only doctrine that's been empirically validated by 2,000 years of human history. And I think that is, you know, a profound grasp uh, of the obvious. And as the Apostle Paul states elsewhere, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So our sin, this is, this is a plight. Uh, this is something that deserves and brings condemnation. But then what's wonderful about these few verses I'm drawing to your attention this morning is that right next juxtaposed, that's the word I'm looking for, to man's plight is God's gracious provision. Verse 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. Now, the word rescue can be translated uh, as to save or to deliver, but I really prefer, and as do most of the English translations, I prefer the word rescue because I think it brings a certain kind of urgency to think about being rescued. Uh, it's curious to me because the ESV is such a, a great translation, and that's Pastor Brad's uh, translation of choice. I'm still wedded after 56 years to the New American Standard Bible. It's too late for me to change. If I was 25 or 30 years younger, I'd probably follow your example, Brad, but on this, sorry, buddy, I can't. <laughs> but, uh, but most of the translations, NIV, um, NLT, NSB, all use the word rescue. And the idea of being rescued from this domain of darkness. We were saying earlier how inspiring it is to see people who are rescued. Well, that's certainly true in the realm of sin and spiritual well-being. Along with the rescue, there is... In fact, I, I, should, I should pass this along. I was reading one Greek scholar who was trying to flesh out the various ways this word rescue in the Greek language is used, and the one that I thought was the most graphic is he opted to say it means to drag away out of danger, to drag away out of danger, and that's what God has done for us in pulling us out of this domain of darkness when we come to know Christ. In fact, it makes me think of, uh, remember a few years ago, the Oscar-winning actor, Jamie Foxx, uh, he heard a crash that was just outside of his house, and he went out, and he found a guy who had flipped his vehicle two or three times, was in a ditch, the car was on fire, and he went out and participated in breaking through the window, and he dragged that guy out of the car. Of course, it really made headlines because he was so well-known, and he wasn't looking for attention in that regard, but the fact is, uh, there's video of him dragging this guy out of the car window breaking it and dragging them out. And that's, that's the image that I think that is being brought to us here when we read, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and then uses another great expression, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So that domain of darkness is exchanged for a kingdom of light. In fact, I started reading at verse 13, if you just let your eye drop back to verse 12, 
he mentions giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So he's really contrasting those two, that we've been called as saints to be in the light, but that has entailed God rescuing us and transferring us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. The readers in the city of Colossae, uh, I think this brought a very vivid image to their minds. And I'm not trying to be overly technical, but sometimes, you know, words really matter and a proper definition and translation really matters. But the word that comes out in English as transferred was used in the ancient world to speak of the displacement of conquered people to another land. So, for example, uh, Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian who wrote in the first century, he uses this very word to talk about an ancient king who transported, transplanted many people from east of the Jordan back to his homeland. But more specific to this letter to the Colossians, Antiochus the Great transplanted at least 2,000 Jewish families from Babylon to the city of Colossae, according to the historical record. And so we're talking about people who knew where their forebearers came from, the Jews, and they know that this concept means that, hey, you used to live in one land, but you've been transplanted and transferred to another one. And that's the language that Paul is using here to describe what has happened to us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is described here as having been transplanted to a new kingdom with a new ruler and to whom we render obedience. And what qualifies us to be fit for this new Christ-centered kingdom? What qualifies us is that we have been redeemed. Verse 14, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's interesting that in the New Testament, uh, so many of the terms and the vocabulary that describe various aspects of salvation are terms that are borrowed from the marketplace, uh, from the world of business and commerce, and so often it uses language that seems to talk about financial dealings to describe what has happened to us when we become a new creature in Christ. And the word here for redemption, and you've probably heard this on other occasions, but it literally means a buying back, a setting free by paying a ransom. If you look up in any lexicon, that's what it'll say this word redemption means. Buying back, setting free by paying a ransom. Probably the closest word in the English language would be emancipation. The Old Testament had the concept of redemption woven into the very fabric of their lives. There are numerous laws and rules and regulations, especially in Leviticus, but, for example, if a, a man owned a dangerous bull and he gored a man, uh, he had to pay a fine and be redeemed to not be punished for the death of that man. Or if an Israelite 
uh, was forced to sell himself into slavery because he just didn't have the money to stay afloat. He could later be redeemed. He could redeem himself if he managed somehow to scrape the money together, or someone else, a relative or a friend, could step in and provide the money to redeem them from their predicament. When we come to the New Testament era, it was the word that was used to free slaves from bondage or to have POWs, prisoners of war, set free from their captivity. Josephus gets a second nod this morning. Uh, In his Antiquities of the Jews that he wrote, he actually explains an incident where a Roman general by the name of Crassus, this is about 50 years before Jesus was born, Crassus uh, was making a visit to Jerusalem, and the word was out that he intended to go to the Jewish temple in order to plunder some of the gold and silver items that were in there. And a certain priest named Eliezer met him and presented him with a large bar of gold, which Josephus says was called, and it uses the same word Paul uses here, a ransom instead of all. That is, take this bar of gold and leave our other things in place. And so the idea of, of paying a ransom, uh, some people find this objectionable. Even people under the umbrella of Christianity. Uh, there are biblical scholars who renounce this idea that a ransom is paid by what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, for those who... Um, I am new to you. Uh, Others who have known me a long time have heard me reference this probably in some past message. But um, years ago, I was invited to address a Christian faculty fellowship group on the University of Florida campus on Good Friday. And so I brought a 20 or 30 minute message, and in there I was talking about some of these concepts of, you know, redemption and ransom. And one of the professors who had one of the boldest Christian testimonies on campus, everyone knew he was a Christian. Uh, He wrote me a letter afterward contesting this concept that Paul is bringing up here of redemption by way of paying a ransom. And he was kind, but thought I was mistaken. I wrote him back a kind letter and just said, I don't know how you look at these words and look at their definitions and not have them say what they mean and try to rob them. And you, you'll recall, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus is quoted as saying, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So, the idea of purchase is indeed what Jesus has done for us. In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul says to a group of elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And in writing to Timothy, Paul repeats the same phrase, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom. There's another thought here that we need to include when we talk about redemption and Jesus paying the ransom that we might be cleansed of our sin. And that is, the concept of redemption always includes the idea of substitution. 
The idea of substitution, it's inherent in the whole biblical concept of redemption. I've not been there, but I have read that in a, a cemetery in a place called Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, there is the grave of a Civil War soldier. And the stone bears the date of his birth and death, and then these words are inscribed on that tombstone. Abraham Lincoln's substitute. And what that reflects is that it was true during the American Civil War that, you know, all men were called up to serve. And I don't know if this happened in the South, but in the North, a person who was physically unable or for whatever reasons did not want to go enlist, he could pay money and he would pay someone else to go in his place. And so they would give cash to the young man who's going to join in his place. And Lincoln felt like he needed to find one man to attach his name to, to know that he's out there fighting for me, or he's out there fighting and doing what I should be doing. And that is, that is right in line with what the Bible teaches about Jesus being uh, our substitute, which is why we read statements like, uh, he's become a curse for us, or that Christ died for us. And then another facet to this whole principle is down in verses 19 and 20. Through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. The word reconciliation denotes the idea of to change or exchange, uh, in particular of persons who perhaps are at enmity with one another, exchanging that enmity for friendship and unity and peace. Actually, a more intense form of that word appears in verse 20 because it means to reconcile completely, thoroughly, totally, that is, leaving no obstacle or impediment uh, to unity and peace. Uh, one of the ways we think of the word reconcile, unfortunately, in our culture is that you hear of people who get divorced because of irreconcilable differences. And, of course, trade unions will have strikes against corporations, and they'll be at a standstill, and then people are brought in to bring some kind of reconciliation to bring the two sides to some point uh, of agreement. Uh, what can we do to remove the obstacles so that there is a united front here? Perhaps crassly, the idea of reconciliation means to bury the hatchet, that whatever is preventing a relationship, that you remove it. The means of God's reconciliation is the death of Christ, His shed blood on the cross. And that's what he states in verse 20, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And so He has made peace between God and man when there was enmity and separation. And His blood, His death, is the ransom. Now, we should not think that there's anything mystical about Jesus' blood. When it speaks about His blood, that is just synonymous with the fact that He was dying and giving His life as a man. Years ago, I was um, in Belgium 
and I was in a small uh, medieval town called Bruges, and there in that town there is the Basilica of the Holy Blood. And I had read in some of the literature before I went on the trip that this church claims to have a glass vial that has the blood of Jesus in it, that somehow was preserved and then after the Crusades was brought back from the Holy Land and given to this church. And that once a year, I think it was once a year, they allow people to come through and walk through in a line and it's on display there. And it happened to be while I was there, so I got in line. And so I'm walking through and I stop and look and this glass thing, it just all looks like powder. But then as I was reading the information they provided, once a year it miraculously liquefied and looked like blood. Uh, it saddens me that people line up to see that and that somehow that they look to that to bolster their faith. Uh, that's not the significance of Jesus' blood. The fact that someone would have it as some kind of a, a special miraculous potion, but rather it's the fact that he gave his life, as I said. We just celebrated the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, last week. But the incarnation we just celebrated, that did not achieve our reconciliation. The example of his sinless life does not accomplish our reconciliation. Reconciliation was accomplished on the cross when Jesus declared it is finished and bowed his head and died. Thus prompting the Apostle Paul in yet another place when he says, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So I say this is the greatest rescue mission of all time because here you have people that in one place in Romans, this is how Paul describes people apart from Christ prior to their coming to faith. He uses the word that we're helpless, that we're ungodly, that we're sinners, that we're even enemies of God. And yet God takes the initiative to rescue, to transfer us from one kingdom to another, to redeem us, forgive us our sins, make provision for the ransom to be paid so that reconciliation takes place, so that we can have a relationship with God, not only as we sojourn this earth, but for all eternity. So as we come to the Lord's table today, I hope the words that are ringing in our minds, some of them will be rescue, redemption, and reconciliation. Our gratitude and our thanks for these truths should be, should be boundless, should be boundless. As some of you know, uh, my first seminary degree was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is about 35 miles north of Chicago. And not far from there, right on the shore of Lake Michigan, is Northwestern University. Beautiful campus. I went there one day to evangelize on a, an assignment from an evangelism professor. I'll never forget that. Um, I just was walking around the student union, which has a, a glass uh, plate windows looking out over the lake. Beautiful setting. And I was just looking for students that were willing to talk, and I was going to tell them about Jesus. Well, I ended up talking with a guy who was a PhD in philosophy, and I was supposed to write up the experience for the professor. I just said, basically, the conclusion of this conversation was Lions 2, Christian 0. I mean, this guy just had me in circles, you know. But 
uh, what I'm getting at is because Northwestern is right there on the shore of Lake Michigan, from its earliest days, they had formed a life-saving team because it was not unusual for ships to founder. And I thought a, a lake was like Okeechobee. I mean, if you see Lake Michigan, it's like looking at the Atlantic Ocean, and it's just as stormy. Many ships have sunk there. But Northwestern had students who provided this life-saving team. And uh, many, many years ago, a, a ship was foundering, the Lady Elgin, and a, a ministerial student named Edward Spencer personally rescued 17 people and got them to shore. But the exposure from that episode permanently damaged his health, and he was unable to continue preparation for the ministry. Well, some years later when he died, it was noted that not one of the 17 people ever came to thank him for him rescuing them. And of course, when I read that, it made me immediately think of Jesus' parable of the ten lepers, when he said, where are the other nine? Only one came back to thank him and to praise God. And so that's why I say we want to be sure that our gratitude and thanks for these truths about our salvation are, are boundless. You know, in some traditions of the Christian church, communion, the Lord's Supper, is also called the Eucharist. And the reason it's called that is because the Greek word eucharisteo simply means to give thanks. To give thanks. This table and to participate in part means to give thanks. Please pray with me. Father, we do thank you with full hearts as we consider here even briefly this morning the import of what the Apostle Paul has recorded. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and for the price he did pay and a price we could never come up with on our own in order to restore us to yourself. We thank you that even though he was the sinless son of God, he encountered the judgment and the punishment for our sin that we deserve to receive ourselves. So we thank you for the bread and the cup that's before us and for, for all that it means. And we thank you in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.